Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Good evening and welcome to Radio Islam. I'm your host, Tariq Alameen. We are broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM and we're streaming live at www.wcev1450.com. If you are new to the Radio Islam family, we welcome you. Thanks for tuning in. You can keep up with us by following and liking our pages on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You'll find us at Radio Islam USA. And you'll use that same username to tap into all of those episodes that you may have missed out on. And once you hear them, you're going to want to share them. So wherever you get your podcasts, you'll find us at Radio Islam USA. So that's SoundCloud, TuneIn, iTunes, or Google Play. You'll find us at Radio Islam USA. And what else should I tell you? Oh, if throughout the course of tonight's discussion, you, uh, you get a notion to give us a call, you want to interject, have a comment or a question, feel free to give us a call at 312-750-1178. That's 312-750-1178. It is a, I guess it's a cooling day here in Chicago, uh, downtown Chicago. And I'm thinking that I should have brought a coat with me today, but that's beside the point. Uh, Radio Islam family tonight, we're going to have um, kind of a multi-layered conversation. We'll be jumping around a little bit, but all within the, under the umbrella of the effects of race on uh, politics. And we're we're going to be looking internationally with a specific uh, example in mind, uh, the the politics of, um, of race as it has manifested itself uh, in Israel against the uh, Palestinians. And we're also going to be talking about the effects of race in our, in our labor unions uh, right here and possibly even abroad. So uh, to help us do that, we have Mr. Bill Fletcher Jr. joining us. He is an activist, author, media commentator, uh, frequently called upon in TV and radio. He's a former president of Trans Africa Forum a senior scholar with the Institute for Policy Studies, an editorial board member of blackcommentator.com and in the leadership of several other projects. And among the books that he has authored or co-authored are The Indispensable Ally, Black Workers and the Formation of the Congress of Industrial Organizations, 1934-1941, Solidarity Divided, The Crisis in Organized Labor and a New Path Toward Social Justice, and is the author of They're Bankrupting Us, and 20 other myths about unions. So, that being said, we welcome him to the show. Assalamu alaikum, Brother Bill. Wa alaikum salam. Thank you for having me on the program. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. So, as I, uh, as I said at, at the outset, uh, we're talking about how race permeates, uh, finds its way into uh, just different areas, different expressions of, of our lives. And uh, there was a, a piece that you wrote recently about how that very fact is present in the state of Israel in its response to, uh, to the Palestinian nonviolent, uh, I should mention, protesters. Mm-hmm. So if you would, for anybody who, um, and I don't want to say anybody's been under a rock, but, but there's so much news, the news cycle is so, so fast uh, that there's a possibility that maybe some folks have missed uh, what took place is being referred to as Bloody Friday. Um, what, uh, could you tell us what was the point of view that you came from in the piece that you wrote? Well, there's, a, there's a, actually a few issues here. One is the conscious uh, decision by the Israeli political establishment 
to authorize uh, its soldiers to shoot to kill and shoot to maim nonviolent, unarmed protesters. Mm-hmm. Uh, as, uh, as you and I were discussing earlier, uh, this is comparable to the Sharpeville Massacre that mm-hmm. took place in South Africa in 1960, when the apartheid regime uh, gunned down unarmed um, African protesters. And the world responded, as it should, with absolute horror, indignation, and a recognition that South Africa was a fully pariah state. And that's what we're called upon to do right now in this case with Israel. Understand that it's a, it's a pariah state. Mm-hmm. Now, in order to really contextualize it, what we have to appreciate is that the politics of uh, the Israeli political establishment have been moving increasingly to the right towards, in, in a very fascistic direction. And, uh, but the, the basis upon which this is happening was that Israel was set up as a project in conjunction with uh, colonial Britain uh, as an ethno-nationalist state. In other words, the idea being we're going to set the state up for a specific people, and those people, even though they weren't indigenous to that area, would be uh, the dominant force. And so what we've been seeing increasingly is, uh, as opposed to a democratization of Israel, we've been seeing the deeper and deeper growth of an apartheid state. And so these murders of Palestinian protesters should not have come as a surprise, although they are horrific. Mm. And you know what's... um what some people may not know, and I've gotten this as um, as word from people who are on the ground there who have communicated with, with folks here, and they said that they have been, the, the Israeli military have been directed to aim for, uh, if not kill shots, but to aim for uh, legs, uh, and they're using, they're using rounds that essentially uh, render the, the limb uh, unserviceable, whether they, they lose right. the limb or uh, it's or, or it's just non-functioning. That's correct, and so, that's now documented in the mainstream U.S. media. It's not just this is what you heard mm-hmm. is no longer just being spread in progressive circles. It's now in the mainstream media that that's exactly what the Israeli establishment has authorized. So we we really are talking about utter barbarism. I mean, there's no you know, I remember when the killings uh, first started, I had an exchange with someone on Facebook who was trying to explain it away by saying that the protesters uh, had been armed and were threatening the Israelis. Well, it's clearly, it's been documented that that was false. The, yeah. the protesters were not armed. They were protesting. And, uh, and they were getting very angry, but they had no weapons. They were no threat. Not one Israeli soldier has been killed or wounded. Mm-hmm. You know, which, is, which should really should tell us something. I mean, it would be one thing if, you know, if you and I were talking now, we'd say, well, you know, 30 Israeli soldiers were killed and blah, blah, blah. You know, you'd be talking about a battle. 
Right. We're not talking about a bounty. We're talking about a massacre. Yeah. And, and minus the outrage and condemnation that would accompany this this type of uh, of barbarism, this type of, uh, of an atrocity, were it to have taken place in any other place but Israel. Therein lies the rub. Um, that's correct. The the problem is that the United States, increasingly since 1948, has given Israel with with. A couple of notable exceptions, one being in 1956, but has given the Israeli political establishment a pass mm -hmm. that they can take whatever steps they need to secure themselves, uh, up to and including repeated violations of international law and precedent. And the 1956 exception is, is, is very noteworthy. In 1956, then Egyptian President Abdelgamal Nasser uh, nationalized the Suez Canal. And the British and the French, who had controlled the Suez Canal, were furious. Right. And they conspired with the Israelis to launch an invasion against Egypt uh, to secure the, the Suez Canal. The... Um, the then Soviet Union objected to this. The Arab world, of course, objected to this. And then U.S. President Dwight Eisenhower essentially got on the phone and told the British, French, and Israelis that they needed to withdraw, and they needed to withdraw right away. And they did. Mm. Um, it's a noteworthy exception, right. because we have not seen that in in the years that have passed. And in fact, what's happened more recently is that political officials in the United States are almost asked to swear allegiance to Israel uh, as a condition of being elected. Now, what we have to understand that lies behind this is not some particular power that Israel has over the United States. It has to do with a um, Israel as a colonial project that the uh, that Western Europe and then particularly the United States have seen as key to their strategic interests. So it's a symbiotic relationship between the Israeli political establishment and the U.S. political establishment that's going on, and and as a result, there it takes. Uh, an immense amount of pressure to change U.S. actions, not just the rhetoric. During the Obama administration, we absolutely saw a change in rhetoric when it came to Israel and the Palestinians, which is one of the reasons that the Israeli political establishment, despite all of the aid that the U.S. gave to Israel under Obama, but the Israeli political establishment uh, uh, demonized Obama. Uh, in, in very racial terms, by the way, mm -hmm. and uh, because the rhetoric of the administration challenged the, uh, the Israeli political establishment on a number of levels, despite the fact, and this is the irony, despite the fact that the Obama administration did precious little to actually force the Israelis to change their policies. Do you think that this was a reflection of 
Israel's own um, racial climate. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, when you, when you look at the, the founding uh, of Israel, what you see is the clear dominance of Israeli society by European Jews. Mm-hmm. And uh, to the disadvantage of Jews that came from other parts of the world, particularly from North Africa, um, the so-called Middle East, Mm-hmm. and then later Ethiopia. Who they called uh, uh, Falashis. That's correct. Mm-hmm. And, um, and in fact, the intensity of the contradictions within Israel and within the Jewish population was so much so that in the late 1960s, there was a political organization that was formed among the Arab Jews called the Black Panthers. Mm. Um, which existed to protest the uh, the domination of Israeli Israeli society by European Jews. Um, the but what the Israeli political establishment uh, has attempted to do is to increase the number of Jews in Israel and specifically to increase the number of European Jews. Um, and so they they have done something that's in other circumstances would be almost humorous, which is they opened themselves up to all these Russians, uh, many of whom could never prove that they were actually Jewish. Mm-hmm. But they came to uh, Israel, and then they were allowed to settle in the occupied territories, um, in these illegal settlements. So you have this construction of a ethno-national state that is hostile to outsiders. Now, the problem, the problem exists on a number of levels that Israel has not been able to figure out a way to ethnically cleanse uh, itself of all Arabs. And the Arab population is actually quite substantial within Israel and is growing. And this is something that right-wing Zionists more than anything else, that the combination of Palestinians in Israel and Palestinians in the occupied territories will grow fast enough that they'll eclipse the Jewish-Israeli population. Um, So they want to put a clamp on that. The other thing that they want to put a clamp on is the introduction into Israel of non-European settlers, or I shouldn't say settlers, non-European migrants. And this is where the issue of the African migrants that have been showing up on the shores of Israel over the last number of years becomes um, uh, so important. And the, uh, the Israeli political establishment, led by Prime Minister Netanyahu, refers to these immigrants, these undocumented immigrants, as infiltrators. Mm-hmm. And they have arrested and, and, and put in detention camps and expelled uh, as, uh, you know, in, in a way that should sound very familiar because it's the kind of approach that Donald Trump wants to take in the United States. Yes, I was going to uh, mention, uh, in addition to that, that there seems to be a parallel between the uh, uh, is Israel's immigration policy 
and the United States immigration policy, which yeah. has historically and, and, and currently still to, uh, to this date, uh, it supports a balance of or a maintenance of power by uh, white or European uh, ancestry uh, um, uh, peoples. Mm -hmm. And the problem that is uh, presented in that is either you're going to be a, a democratic society or you are going to be clearly a society that is only serving the interest of one particular group, mm -hmm. which Israel has, which seems to wrestle with publicly um, at times, but for, I guess, really, and not, not effectively, uh, especially not in, not, not in light of uh, recent events. Um, do, do you see a point where there could actually be uh, real democratic representation, especially with population shifts as they are? Well, let me answer that in two ways. Mm -hmm. One is that the parallel that you're drawing is very important because it speaks to the rising tide of right-wing populists, right-wing nationalist regimes in, that have moved to define citizenship in ethno-national terms. So, in other, in, as opposed to the notion that the people in a country are citizens, uh, the forces around Trump and around Netanyahu want to define the real, and I use that in quotes, the real people as being a subset of this larger mass. And so in a case of Israel, the right-wing regime of Netanyahu wants to narrow the population, make it a European-dominated Jewish uh, state, uh, and where ultimately they drive the Palestinians completely out. Their objective is to drive the Palestinians into Jordan. And, and this comes from a, there's a long line in Israel of thought that says that Jordan is the real Palestinian state and that all Palestinians within the borders of Israel and the occupied territories need to be driven out and driven to Jordan and make Israel and the formerly occupied territories a, an ethnically pure state. That's their objective. Um, so it's, it's, it's very dangerous. Now, you can't have a democracy under those circumstances. Right. You're creating something very different. And, and I think what, we, uh, what we'd have to look at in order for a democracy to really emerge, you would have to end the occupation, and you'd have to give full rights to the Palestinians as citizens, um, and you would have to end the discriminatory practices that are carried out by Israel against the Palestinians. Mm. You know, the United States, we are well known uh, for our first-class racism. Um, but, and, and there's, there have been, um, there continues to be dialogue about uh, confronting it, uh, dealing with it, uh, but it's not something that we normally associate at least publicly, we don't associate with the state of Israel um, that there is a, a racial element 
uh, to their politics uh, or to life there. Right. Um, why, uh, in, in your estimation, uh, is that is that simply an oversight, or is it simply that the United States, in particular because of its own history, is is ashamed away from pointing out uh, in another um, state? No, it's it's complicated. It's complicated by the history uh, surrounding World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, up until the U.S. entered. Uh, World War II, when uh, there was a high level of anti-Semitism in the United States, and there was a resistance to the acceptance of Jewish refugees from Germany. Right. Um, in fact, there's a very famous case of the SS St. Louis, mm-hmm. which came to the United States with Jewish refugees. It was an incredible propaganda coup by Hitler, where he basically said, I don't want these Jews, I'm going to send them somewhere else. And no one would take them. No one. Mm. And the boat returned to Germany, and people were put into concentration camps. So the United States, after World War II, and all the revelations of the Holocaust, found itself deeply embarrassed by its uh, virulent anti-Semitism and its hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. So when the uh, Israel was formed, and there was a great debate in the U.S. political establishment about whether to support the formation of Israel, because there was some that said this could be a real tricky problem vis-a-vis the Arabs and, and our relationship with the Arabs. But that wing of the establishment lost out. When Israel was formed, it was described as a democratic state being formed in opposition to corrupt, feudal regimes in the Middle East, and as a homeland for people who had been subject to this horrific experience of the Holocaust. Um, There was very little discussion about the fact that the Arabs were never consulted about this, that there were hundreds of thousands of Arabs living in Palestine. It was, a, it was considered a British mandate, British territory. Right. Um, they'd been living there, and the, uh, they weren't consulted. No one asked them. And so their land was divided up by the United Nations, and a war broke out, and so on and so forth. Now, what happens afterwards with the successful uh, establishment of the state of Israel was that steps were taken to uh, limit the role of Arabs, Palestinians, in Israeli society. And you can see in that what, why people talk about apartheid. Mm-hmm. You, had, uh, you had land seizures, much as took place in the United States against uh, Mexicans and Native Americans. Yes. You had differential in treatment in schools. Much has happened with those populations as well as African Americans in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you had this differential. But all during this time, Israel tried to present itself as being another successful anti-colonial revolt. 
um, over time, much of the rest of the world began to realize there was something fairly hypocritical about this, and and that the condition of the Palestinians was not uh, humane, and that there really was this differential in treatment that was playing out in the uh, in in Israel, and then with the 1967 war and the the Israeli success in capturing additional territories from Egypt, Jordan, and Syria, you had an additional problem because these occupied territories should have been immediately returned to those countries right after the war, after some sort of settlement. Mm -hmm. Israel instead held on to them and began a settlement process. Now, at no point during this did the U.S. political establishment ever identify the racial or racist characteristics of what Israel was undertaking. And again, there were defenses that were given of Israel's stand on the basis of what happened in the Holocaust. And, and so just think about it like this. When the Holocaust was, uh, was um, conceptualized, mm -hmm. there was not one Arab not one Palestinian who was involved in conceptualizing it. It was all done by Germans. Yet, Israel is created not in Bavaria, not in Prussia, right? Not in some other part of Germany, mm. but it's created in territory that was occupied by Palestinian Arabs. I, I mean, just on its face, Someone should stop and say, well, like, what's this about? Right. And right. that's not what happened. And there's been defenses of this colonization process ever since, although over the last number of years there's been uh, a rising awareness about this. And when former President Jimmy Carter wrote his book several years ago, Palestine, Peace, Not Apartheid, uh, this is something that, really shook up a lot of people that a former U.S. president dared to use the word apartheid to describe what was happening in the, uh, and had been happening in the occupied territories. I would just go farther and say, or further and say, it wasn't just in the occupied territories, it was in the state of Israel itself. Mm. Uh, I draw many parallels between Israel and the United States and feel like they follow a, a model that has been uh, perfected uh, here in the U.S. And I think that it that plays well into the relationship that has been, that, that has um, presented itself now between uh, Palestinian, uh, the Palestinian community uh, looking for liberation uh, there and the Black Lives Matter movement here. And, um, and those parallels that they come up in the the response to nonviolent protest. Um, now, albeit in Selma, there were people that were savagely beaten. Uh, the response was 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 a bit different, but it was uh, a response that was uh, inordinate and certainly out of place, nonetheless. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that Israel? has a chance to undo some of the racial uh, injustices that have, that have um, manifested themselves 
since its inception in 1948. Do you think they have a better chance of getting it right there than the United States does, which has, you know, we have a much longer, um, uh, longer history here and situated much, much differently? Well, you know, this is a fascinating question. So one of the things that I think the, it's important for your listeners to appreciate is that Israel, as with the United States, as with South Africa, as with the former Rhodesia, as with Australia, as with Ireland, uh, as with New Zealand, are what, uh, and, and Kenya and Algeria are what are called what were called settler states. Mm-hmm. And the, what's important about that is that they weren't simply colonies of the Europeans. Uh, Nigeria was a colony of the, of the British. But it wasn't a settler state because there was no attempt by, in that case, the British, to send in its population to remove the indigenous population and to proclaim a state. In the United States and Israel, however, that is what we have seen. There's no interest in, there has been no interest in the United States from its very founding as a colony of Britain on to merge with Native Americans, to merge with Mexicans, certainly to merge with African Americans. It's been to remove those populations by any means necessary. And removal might mean extermination. Removal might mean forced relocation. Removal might mean marginalization. And so that's what these states actually have in common, uh, going back to what the British imposed on Ireland in the 1500s, believe it or not. So to your question of whether or not Israel could correct that, yes, in the same way that that the United States could, but what it necessitates is coming face-to-face with your history and carrying out a very fundamental transformation in the way that the state operates. So in the case of Israel, as I was saying earlier, among other things, what it would mean is ending all vestiges of the occupation. And I want to say something about the occupation in a second. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it would mean ending all elements of the differential in treatment between Palestinians within Israel and Jewish Israelis. Right. Um, and it would essentially mean following the path that South Africa started in 1994 when it moved against apartheid. It has not completed this, but... In, in in that direction, moving in that direction. Bill, uh, can you can, can you hold that thought for a second? We've got to take a quick break. Sure. And when we come back, um, uh, please finish the, finish that thought. Okay. okay. All right, uh, Radio Slam family, you are listening to Radio Slam on WCEV fourteen fifty AM. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. Radio Islam, the nation's first daily live call-in talk radio show produced by Muslims for the mainstream market. Radio Islam, 
on the air since 2004 because of your generosity. Radio Islam salutes its most valuable asset, you, our listener. From our producers to our interns, we appreciate your support. Thank you. Okay, forest animals, kids are coming to the forest, and it's up to us to make their visit a good one. Sparrow, have you practiced the most popular bird songs for the year? Of course. Catchy. I like it. River, how's the temperature? It's a refreshing 52 degrees, man. I love it. Uh, Turtle. He's not here yet, man. Uh, He's late every morning. Okay. Squirrel. The forest has been preparing just for you. To learn more about cool things to do in the forest, visit discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. I knew I was stuck at this kid's house for the night, but those guys snuck up on me to try and pull the hand in a bowl of warm water trick. Well, that was enough for me. I went downstairs to sleep in the basement, even though it was pitch black. I left my sleeping bag upstairs, and that was a mistake, because it was freezing. I think it was probably the longest night of my life. To read more about the sleepover, check out Diary of a Wimpy Kid, The Last Straw by Jeff Kenny. Explore new worlds and check out more cool books at your local library and visit read.gov. Brought to you by the Library of Congress and the Ad Council. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq El and we are still broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM, streaming live at www.wceb1450.com. And remember, you can keep up with us by following and liking our pages on social media Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You'll find us at Radio Islam USA. And you can use that same handle to find our podcast and catch up on those episodes that you have missed or want to revisit. You'll find us at Radio Islam USA on SoundCloud, TuneIn, iTunes, or Google Play. So check it out and share, because sharing is caring. We are talking with Bill Fletcher, Jr. He is an activist, author, and media commentator. We've been talking about uh, some of the uh, racial or the implications uh, and the effects of, of race, uh, how it's played out in Israel, its responses to the nonviolent protest of Palestinians. Uh, and I also mentioned that he is the author of several uh, books. Uh, one of them we'll get into in, in a minute after we um, close out this conversation we started earlier. Uh, that book is They're Bankrupting Us and 20 Other Myths About Unions. So uh, thank you for uh, holding that thought, uh, Brother Veal. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, you, you were saying... Um, about the uh, possibilities of uh, reconciliation. You mentioned the model that South Africa, uh, that they uh, presented, which was something that was almost un- unheard of. That's correct. Um, but, but please do uh, continue. Please. Well, that's the closest that I think that we've come. Mm-hmm. And, the, uh, and, and it's not far enough. Right. Um, because in South Africa, power still rests, particularly economic power, in the hands of white capitalists. Mm-hmm. Um, so South Africa still has a ways to go. But, the, but there were certain steps that South Africa took, including, by the way, um, eliminating nuclear weapons, uh, which I think is something that's really worth thinking about in the, in the context of the current situation, uh, because Israel has nuclear weapons. Yes. And, and, you know, there's all this discussion about Iranian uh, nuclear objectives, mm-hmm. but Israel has weapons. Everyone knows it. Israel just won't admit it, 
and the United States won't talk about it. Right. So I think that the, the answer to your question is yes. I'm optimistic enough to believe that there is a solution. It would necessitate a one-state solution where you had, uh, you know, Jews, Muslims, Christians uh, in Israel and Palestine as a whole uh, as equal citizens. Um, I think that that absolutely could be done. I mean, people have talked about the notion of a binational state, uh, you know, something that may be along the lines of what's being attempted in Northern Ireland. Um, there's any number of possibilities. But one thing that's clear, at least to me, is that insofar as Israel continues its dogged path to reinforcing apartheid, it moves more and more in the direction of a fascistic state. And, and it's a very slippery slope. Indeed it is. And that optimism, um, and optimism is often rewarded, uh, it would be it, it would be a, a beautiful thing to see uh, reconciliation uh, and, and healing there, and and possibly as there is a parallel, um, as I've mentioned, a parallel between Israel and the United States, that that might be that might be uh, provide some of the motivation uh, that we need here. Mm-hmm. Albeit, you know, these are definitely there. There are two different contexts for it, but but still, if you see the example. Um, why can't you emulate it um, in a different, a different space? Correct. So, um, so yeah. So you cover quite a bit of ground, mm-hmm. and, uh, and 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 as I was reading uh, through some of the information uh, on your site and looking at some of your history, uh, noticing that it says after college that you spent time working as a welder in a shipyard, mm-hmm. and I thought about my own uh, my own personal track. You know, I've been a journeyman iron worker. Uh, local one iron worker for the past uh, ten years, and 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 been been involved in labor in many different uh, facets. But it is something that I know you know firsthand very well. So I'm really looking forward to reading your book. Uh, They're bankrupting us and twenty other myths about unions, mm-hmm. and because unions are under you know have been under siege. The collective bargaining has been under siege, uh, under attack for quite some time. These are hard fought gains that we've gotten, anybody who's studied the history of labor, you know, is aware of this, but I don't think many people are. Uh, what are some of the things that you've touched on uh, in this book uh, and the 20 other myths about unions that people who may be on the fence are not aware of? Well, let me start with why the book was written in the first place. Um, in 2011, the publisher of that book, Beacon Press, contacted me. And they said that in light of the um, massive demonstrations that were taking place in Wisconsin uh, that against Scott Walker and his attacks on workers, right. and the rise of the Occupy Wall Street movement, there was this renewed interest in unions. But one of the things that they discovered was that many people had no idea what a union was. And, uh, and so they said to me, we'd like you to write something that speaks to myths and broad brush criticisms of unions. I apologize for interrupting you. Um, 
You said there were people who did not know what a union was. Correct. Correct. And, and I'll tell you the story that really affected me and affected how I wrote the book. Mm. Um, after agreeing to write it, uh, I happened to be on a plane flying from uh, San Jose to San Diego. And I was sitting next to this young woman who was, you know, in her 30s, probably. And she was looking at me reading a book, and I was reading a book about global labor union mm-hmm. issues. And so she asked me, like, what are you reading? I'm always interested in what people are reading. So I told her. And so she looked at me and she said, what is a labor union? Wow. Now, at first I thought she was joking with me, mm-hmm. and then I realized that she wasn't. So I started to explain to her what a union was, tried giving her different examples that might resonate. And she started nodding her head, but nodding her head in a way that you've seen when someone has no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> and, and so this woman became a critical image for me. When I wrote this book, I imagined myself sitting at Starbucks, having coffee with this woman, Mm -hmm. and I was trying to think of what were the questions that she might ask me. And that's how I wrote the book. Mm. So it's written for people that either don't know much about unions or watch too much Fox News (laughs) um, and want to know. And, and so I'll give you an example. One of the, one of the things that is uh, often raised, and it's being raised right now in the context of a Supreme Court decision that will be coming out shortly, mm-hmm. is about uh, do you have to join a union and why do I need to pay? Mm. And so one of, what I try to do is to show how... Um, unions have a legal obligation, an obligation by law, to represent all members of what's called a bargaining unit, that is, all eligible workers who could conceivably be represented by the union. They have an obligation to represent them, irrespective of whether they're union members. And so the problem for the union, then, is... How do they cover the cost of representation? Right. And they do that either through dues or through something that's called an agency fee. And an agency fee is when a worker will uh, not join the union but pays a certain amount of money that contributes towards the cost of their representation. Well, it's a very simple concept. It's, it's sort of like you may live in a particular town, and whether you like the people who are, you know, the mayor of that town, for example, you can't say, well, I'm not going to pay my taxes. Right. Right? Because the reality is you get certain things for that. You get roads, you get fire and police protection, you get water and sewer, right? I mean, that's what you get. Mm -hmm. And so you can't just say, well, I don't like who was elected mayor, and therefore I'm going to stop paying. I mean, it doesn't happen. 
But when it comes to unions, there have been forces grouped around something called the National Right to Work Committee that have been trying to push that notion. So I, I try to tackle a variety of questions, and I introduce history, because most of us don't know much about the history of workers in the United States and the history of the unions. Right. And, and so I'm not providing legal, academic answers. I'm trying to situate these questions so that someone gets, uh, gets a background. You know, another example is um, unions are often attacked for corruption right. by their opponents. Mm -hmm. But as if to say, well, because of corruption, you shouldn't have unions. Well, let's stop and think about that for a second. If you use that same standard with corporate America, we could end capitalism today. Sure. Because the amount of corruption that we find in corporate America is nothing short of monumental. And it happens all the time. All, I mean, think about the, the crash in 2008 and what, what was going on in Wall Street. For a guy if like Madoff. You, that's right, Madoff, exactly. So if you were to use that standard, you'd say, well, we should abolish Wall Street and abolish capitalism. And, you know, I'd be open to that discussion. But, but, <laughs> right. but that's not what's happening. Mm -hmm. Yet when you find that there's someone in a union that does something illegal or whatever, people are prepared to draw all sorts of conclusions. So that's an example. I just try to take different things that have been raised and, and try to disentangle the mess. One thing that I, I have found in my discussions uh, with people about unions or just about just about the work environment in general is that people tend to take for granted things like a a 40-hour work week right or overtime or safety protocols um, uh, you know things that we just you know that are taken for granted but that came at a very high cost uh, uh, to people. Correct. Um, you know, and, and there were people, uh, and there were many people who, who lost their lives, you know, in that fight. Uh, and their agencies today, you know, if you, if you say Pinkerton, people think about, you know, security. Um, but that history uh, of Pinkerton's involvement as, uh, as, as, um, as strike busters, um, as, um, as enforcement, uh, you know, that's not something that's really, that's brought up today. So I only say, that's to right. say that there's, there's a whole lot that has been lost in people's evaluation of the value of unions and, and the place of them. Um, do you find, what are some of the responses that you have gotten from people who have read the book, uh, particularly those who, who may not be uh, very familiar with unions? I've, I've gotten an incredibly positive response to the book ever since it came out. And it came out in 2012, um, and people use it um, repeatedly. Mm -hmm. I've got a very positive response, in part because I don't talk down to the reader. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not waving my finger at the reader, suggesting that they're somehow idiotic for not knowing certain things. Right. Um, it's a discussion. That's the way to think about the book. It's really a discussion with people about what's going on and informing them about elements of history that they may not be familiar with. So to use your, uh, what you were just saying, 
one of the things that a lot of workers don't appreciate is precisely the point that what they have gained in terms of 40-hour week, weekends, vacations, pensions, this was the result of struggle, of collective struggle. Mm -hmm. It wasn't the result of the wisdom of some political leader or of some corporate mogul. It was the result of workers that fought and in some cases, as you pointed out, died. Mm -hmm. um, and when unions came under really vicious assaults beginning in the late 40s and then on, uh, the ability to bargain collectively and organize was called into question. There's no democratic society on this planet that, that exists without strong unions. It just mm. doesn't happen. Uh, when, when you, because one of the things to keep in mind is that the non-union workplace is a totalitarian environment. When you go to work in a non-union workplace, you are, in effect, abandoning most of your rights. Right. You know, you, you have... There's no freedom of speech. There's no uh, freedom of association. Uh, there's no freedom of the press. I mean, all of these things are, are out the window. You can be fired for any reason or no reason as long as the, the firing doesn't um, violate a statute. And even then, you have to go out of your way and sometimes several years to prove that your firing was a violation of a statute. So unions play a very important role in democratizing society. Uh, and this is, uh, you know, this is part of the theme of the book. Mm. Now, you know, we're also coming up on a, an auspicious date, um, and uh, and I'll preface this by saying that my own union uh, was established in uh, 1896, uh, and I'm well aware that uh, there was no way that I would have been a member at that time. That's right. Uh, but 10 years prior to that, the Haymarket uh, massacre or Haymarket riots uh, took place in, in Chicago. And it has, it's had a, a lasting effect, or the effect at the time was that there was a, a public uh, a, a turning on, uh, on unions, uh, on labor, uh, matter of fact, and, and immigrants as well. Do you think that we, we could find ourselves, or do you feel like we are in a similar position today? Yes and no. Um, unions have been under in increased attack since the 1980s, um, and it doesn't get any better, mm -hmm. um, or hasn't gotten any better. But what is different is the nature of the fight back. It's like if you look at the work of the Chicago Teachers Union, mm -hmm. which I think did a tremendous job in taking on fights, not only for its own members, but fighting for the kids, right. which has been replicated by these teacher strikes that have been spreading around the United States. So you see resistance. The resistance is out there. There are these uprisings that are taking place. 
The critical question is whether the uprisings can come together into a coherent social movement. And I think that is the challenge that awaits us. Mm-hmm. Well, um, Brother Bill, we appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. Uh, this hour always goes by so quickly. Uh, and I hope that we can have you on again in the very near future. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. All right. Uh, Radio Sound family, we've been talking with Bill Fletcher, Jr. He is an activist, author, and media commentator. Uh, he is the author of several books, the one that we referenced uh, at, at our closing, They're Bankrupting Us, and 20 Other Myths About Unions. Uh, so you might want to check that out, Google them, uh, and you can see all of the, uh, the books that he has authored or co-authored. All right. We want to thank our engineer over at WCEV, Leonard for uh, making sure we come through loud and clear. Thank you very much, sir. We thank our engineer in studio, the impressive one, assistant producer, Ibrahim Baig. I am your host and producer, Tariq al Our executive producer is Abdul Malik Mujahid. We remind you that the views expressed by the host and or guest are theirs and not to be taken as a representation of Sound Vision Inc.'s position. So that being said, we look forward to joining you again tomorrow, same time, 6 p.m. Central. Everyone have a great evening. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for tuning in. I'm going to leave you as I greeted you. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you.